Welcome, everybody. We have a really wonderful show today because we're talking with Paula Harris. Of course, we all love Paula Harris. Everyone at Gaia loves Paula Harris. You love Paula Harris. And Paula Harris deserves it because she's probably one of the very, very top researchers in the field of um, ufology ufology and um, extraterrestrials. And one of the things we're going to be looking at, and the reason we're doing this show is because I'm excited that the History Channel has decided to put out a very high-end production called Project Blue Book. For those of you who have followed this, this, this topic in the past, you'll know that Project Blue Book was really key in trying to get information forward, but also failing badly. And so now we're looking at a soft disclosure with the series coming out, and Paula's going to tell us kind of the truth, the real skinny behind Project Blue Book. And uh, we'll talk about disclosure as well. So, Paula, it's wonderful to have you with us again. <laughs> hi, hi, it's good to see you, Regina. It's always good to do work with you, and uh, and I just really love your shows. So. Thank you. We, we have fun. We always have, we have fun. Time. We do. We have a good time. And, and uh, ironically enough, Project Blue Book is really close to my heart. And it came out this year. And uh, I was really surprised because uh, that it was really a situation where I work with Dr. J, uh, J. Allen Hynek. That's how I started right. my career. Well, <laughs> that's, that's the exciting part of this is. You worked with him years and years ago uh, when this was all really fresh, you know, as kids and who have carried on with some of it. So what I'd like to do before we go any deeper into this, let's take a look at the History Channel um, trailer of Project Blue Book. Now, it's only been a couple episodes that have aired so far, uh, another, I think another eight, uh, seven, eight episodes to go. So they spent a lot of money on it. Most of you have probably seen some kind of PR around it. So let's go take a look at the trailer. Forest smelled like death. Lord Almighty. And then saw that thing. As God is my witness, it was not of this world. We have a situation in West Virginia. Family reported seeing something falling from the sky. I'll get down there right away. I need you to meet someone first. Name's Dr. Alan Hynek. You want me to investigate flying saucers? I want you to help me prove to the public the truth. They don't exist. Lori, Will, you can come on out now. Doctor, tell me what's happening to my babies. If you believe that you have seen these strange lights in the sky, would you please raise your hand? My name is Dr. Hynek. We understand that you saw an entity. The men in the hats. And they were scared. You should be, too. <laughs> Alan's working on some really strange things. The flying saucers. More than that, I just don't feel safe anymore. I'm wondering if Professor Hynek will one day be a problem that needs solving. You think it's possible extraterrestrial life exists? The probability of us being alone in our universe is 
Zero. You're not under attack. What the hell was that? Those things were not planes. How the hell would you know what types of planes the Russians have or don't have? The Russians have nothing to do with this. I am closer than I've ever been. Need I remind you of our purpose here? Flying saucers don't exist. How do you explain the damage? What type of UFO could do that? I'm, I'm sorry, UFO what? They're watching us. Hey! There's something more going on here. I want to know what it is. I said close the case. What the hell do you expect? I expected to discover the truth. Logic can't begin to explain what we're dealing with here. So, Paula, of course, watching this trailer, they make it all juicy. They always they always pick, you know, some of the most startling parts of it. And uh, one of the episodes we've already seen has to do with um, Flatbush and a family who had radiation burns and, and believed they saw a, an E.T. kind of monster-looking creature. But before we go there, let's first talk about the notion that this has even come out at all and who J. Allen Hynek was and how you knew him. Okay, so let's go there first. Oh, those are a lot of uh, places to go. But anyway, <laughs> let's start with the first thing. Project Blue Book was an Air Force attempt uh, from 1952 to 1960 to uh, gather files of UFO reports that they considered credible, but they had always the intention of debunking them all. And as you see the first two episodes, they explain them in such a weird way that you this was what the generals wanted, this is what the group wanted, this is what Majestic 12 wanted. They wanted to explain them. And they had to do that because these things were happening and the general public didn't have any place to go and they didn't have any place to ask about uh, what was happening. So... Uh, the Air Force sets up Project Blue Book. They set up uh, a legitimate group of Air Force um, investigative guys. But then they add this professor uh, from Wesleyan. I mean, and uh, Heineck, when I met him, was at Northwestern in Illinois, but he started out in, um, in Ohio. And they said, well, listen, let's drag him in so that it seems like, you know, we're really investigating these cases. And I think poor Alan um, at the time uh, thought that, um, I don't think he was convinced this was real. He was more convinced that, that uh, something unusual was happening and that the Air Force really, you know, cared about it. And you can tell from the first two episodes, he's very sincere. He goes out there and he, he's uh, investigating, he's measuring. I don't think he climbed the tree that he climbed in the Flatbush. I was wondering about that. Uh, he doesn't <laughs> climb trees. Uh, Alan did not climb any trees. Uh, and But Alan, and I don't think Alan did all the physical uh, things that they have him doing, running and doing these things, because he wasn't that type of guy. He was a, he was a absent-minded professor who never, never went anywhere without his pipe. Now, that is the very unusual part here. Well, he he is a Tweety-looking character in this book. They do paint him as the academic and the Tweety guy, but yes, they're running it more like Indiana Jones and, and the adventure story than it actually is. It's just not the, the physical components, as you're saying. And, yeah, but he also had a pipe constantly. Yeah. Chew on it, he'd have it. 
And I was told that, the, that, that this particular actor uh, didn't want the pipe and everybody's smoking. I was noticed there all smoking <laughs> episodes and it can't be because you don't want smoke, uh, smoking to influence young people. So as I'm watching this and I know Alan and, and uh, you know, they're doing a really good job portraying him. Uh, I think it's Aiden Gillen from, uh, and was he in Game of Thrones? I, I think that he was. And, and anyway, this actor is doing a great job, but no pipe. It's really very difficult. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the cast is, has been chosen pretty well in this. I mean, the women are very kind of mad menish uh, 60s kind of women, uh, even though it was 50s, I guess, but that kind of that kind of persona, very glib and very glamorous and so forth. And I'm sure the women weren't. But again, this is TV. It doesn't matter because the reality is they are depicting the cases. And, and this is a little different from what Discovery Channel has done with Ancient Aliens, for example. So let's go on with Heineck. And then I want to start distinguishing about what they're doing versus what we've seen on Ancient Aliens and also go further into Project Blue Book. All right. When he does the investigations here, they're very authentic. In other words, they're on location. This is the 1950s. His wife looks like a 19... Mimi, whom I knew very well, looks like a 1950s wife. And there's Joel, the first son, and and uh, the son. And I... And everything's okay, except that there's this undercurrent that there's this Russian spy following her around, and there's this undercurrent of the men in black that appear all the time there in the back. So when I'm watching this, this looks a lot like the X-Files. In other words, it's more X-Files-y than it is um, really cut-and-dry documentary. It is a documentary. You can tell that they have taken a lot of license uh, here because you're wondering why the Russian woman spy is always courting Mimi and taking her out and so forth. And then you're wondering why um, the the, uh, Air Force is acting the way it is. They actually show you that the man that Alan's working with is beginning to wonder if this is real or not. So I like that part. And they're covering real cases. And there were 701 files, 701 files in the Blue Book files. How do I know that? James Fox was making a movie called 701. And it was uh, Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book ended in 1969. And it was, uh, and what had happened was that the Air Force hired this guy named Condon. Yes. And, of course, they whitewashed the whole thing. Here where I am in Colorado at the University of Colorado. And I've spoken to the University of Colorado because the chancellor is my good buddy. He was my professor. I have a master's in education. And I've said to him, I said, you know, you guys got bad karma. Because what you've done in 1969 is you whitewashed it with the Condon Report saying that nothing there was nothing to it with all of those cases. Uh, and those cases, some of them were verifiable. So, you know, I was never able to do anything there because I wanted them to have like a conference at the University of Colorado and admit they were wrong. Uh, you always want Yeah, that. like that's going to happen, Paula. <laughs> For what reason then, but- you know, you're going to get into the disclosure argument. For what reason? I'm not sure the world wants disclosure. Well, that may be. Now, let's let's go back. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's go back a little bit because 
What happened during the day is the Air Force actually had a Blue Book officer on every single Air Force base. Now, that's not something you would do lightly unless there were data that you absolutely felt you were going to be encountering or you wouldn't have a a very specific person assigned to doing exactly this at every Air Force base in the United States. Okay, so they were taking this seriously because this was post Roswell. And people were starting to have, there were sightings that were happening. Thousands of people were calling in. And finally, they felt pressured to say something about it. I think the same question keeps rising again and again. They did, first it was what? Project Sign, then Project Grudge. Project Grudge, after they found some things in Project Sign, Project Grudge was to cover it all up, basically. Whitewash everything. Then Project Blue Book, where they effectively did that, right? Yeah, but you got two things going on here, Regina. They get, they're getting real information, and they want yeah. to know. Yeah. And there's a group of them that know this is real. Right. But this is, they're not playing around. There's money here being spent. So there's a group of them that know it's real, and they want the information. But they want the information because they don't know what's going on. And it's a matter of national security if you really want to go there. I mean, they have these uh, craft in the sky that they can't do anything about that appear, that follow their airplanes. and. In, in, in the first one, the, the dog fight, I mean, uh, that was a highly dangerous situation. So, you know, on one hand, they know it's real, on, on, and they want to know. They want to collect all this. On the other hand, they have to make a cover story for the general public. I know, because they seem to feel that the general public is not intelligent enough to handle this kind of uh, mystery, so to speak to live with it, to have a sense of wonder about it and not freak out. And, and they somehow have maintained that attitude the entire time, which is why this stuff remains to be um, cloistered information and it still remains to be a giggle factor. I want to read something. This was Now, this is really kind of basic off of Wikipedia's take on Blue Book, but I thought it was a very important passage uh, to bring up here. Okay, so first of all, the panel that was established by the Robertson panel by the CIA that again, in an attempt to gather data and then just whitewash it, kick it out. It said, this is part of what they did as the entry in Wikipedia says. So I'll read it to you. It says they suggested debunkery through mass media, including Walt Disney productions and using psychologists, astronomers and celebrities to ridicule the phenomena and put forward prosaic explanations. Furthermore, civilian UFO groups, quote, should be watched because of their potentially great influence on mass thinking, the apparent irresponsibility, and the possible use of such groups for subversive purposes should be kept in mind. So there was a lot of paranoia around this, and we know that there were attempts, and we're gonna talk about another one in a minute, Um, There were attempts to suppress this through the mass media. I can even say as a news anchor, we would get reports via Reuters that there were mass sightings in Europe or somewhere. We weren't allowed to ever report that when I was on the news. It was verboten, blacklisted subject. Well, you know, I'm glad you said that because uh, they, they, you know, I was very close with Colonel Philip Corso. Yes. He used to tell me, look. We couldn't let the public think this was real, but we didn't have to do very much because ufologists themselves had such way out ideas and they were fighting among themselves and they were debunking each other and there was such turmoil going on. He said that nothing was clear. He said, we didn't have to do very much in the army. He was army. 
But uh, uh, when you look at this, uh, unless you have a firm academic like a professor, J. Allen Heineck, God bless him, working on this, who changed his mind. I mean, he left Louisville yeah. and started the Center for UFO Studies. And, I have a, 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 and that's when I met him. I was teaching science fiction in 1980, saw Close Encounters, ended up in Evanston, Illinois, walked into the Center for UFO Studies, never thinking he was there because I was going to open up all their files. You know, I've got files here in my office that I've been working on forever. And I thought, let me look, look at their files and see if they're real. Uh, and he happened to be there. I mean, this just started my whole life. And it was all serious, uh, serious uh, serendipity uh, events. And he came around the court with the pipe, with the pipe, <laughs> and said to me, would you like to work with me? And I said, absolutely. And he said, well, he said, you speak Italian. And, he, and they gave me a box of Italian files, sightings, clo uh, close encounters of the second kind, which are physical traces, cases where the thing actually lands and you can measure the soil, the radiation. Um, he's the one, you know, who coined the phrase close encounters of the third kind. Yeah, yeah. He and actually Jacques Vallée, who I have since met, um, uh, started together working in Evanston and be made it real because he's a, a, a professor. It's an academician. It's somebody who's studying this. So, uh, and he doesn't have ulterior motives where the Air Force felt it was a, uh, a matter of national security to keep a lid on it. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, they went further than that. This is another... Um, Another uh, piece of data that I wanted to bring up. In December 1953, Joint Army-Navy-Air Force Regulation Number 146 made it a crime. This is, this is where it's key. A crime for military personnel to discuss classified UFO reports with unauthorized persons. Viola uh, violators faced up to two years in prison and or fines up to $10,000. So this creates now official cover-up. Yes, uh, in those days, well, it's a matter, I mean, I mean in all fairness, what are you going to do? Because this is real. What are you going to tell the people? So in all fairness, it is uh, a matter of national security. We have to be fair about that. What I love about what Heineck did is that he changed his mind because right. he was told to, to call it swamp gas. So when I met him, I remember he'd sit there and go, you know, the ufologists don't like me because they said they've been studying this for a long time, and I'm a Johnny-come-lately, I've, I've changed my mind, and now I'm studying it, and, you know, they'll never let me forget the word swamp gas, and, <laughs> and I felt so sorry for him. But uh, he really made an effort, and, you know, he made an effort to do another thing with Jacques Vallée. They went and looked at the paranormal component because – even though they show the paranormal component in the show, in the science fiction show, they wanted nuts and bolts stuff. They wanted measurements. They wanted uh, radar. They wanted trajectory. They could not handle the paranormal component, the dimensionality of things appearing and disappearing and so forth. Yeah, that that is true. And yes, I, I think... You know, this was 60 years ago, 50 years ago. There's a time at which you would think it would start becoming clear. Uh, I mean, we're getting to a point, 
when it comes to, quote, disclosure, where there's just going to be enough mass awareness that it's it's already in a de facto way happened. And I think we're really there now. I think um, in, to a large extent, um, the open-minded public anyway, the way they handled this, and I referred earlier to ancient aliens. The thing that frustrates me about ancient aliens is uh, it's the information you might say is heavily redacted. Virtually everyone that appears on ancient aliens said, that is not the context I said it in. They chopped it to pieces. That's not what I meant. You know, the typical thing you do in television production, but it matters because it's actually changing the context for what people are saying. And then at the end of the show, as everybody that's watched it knows this, you have the, well, then maybe one day we'll know. And then maybe we won't, you know, it's so nebulous and ending every time it virtually um, delegitimizes the whole case they've just been building for an hour. But in this one, what I found interesting uh, in the last one I saw last week's, which was the Flatbush one uh, with the sight, the sighting of this creature is that they went ahead and made an explanation. It was something else. And so no, yeah, watch no. it. I won't, I, let's not give it away for whoever's going to watch it. Let them be surprised. Oh, okay. They made again, a prosaic kind of observation about what it may have been. That's not what the witnesses felt it was, but that's, that's how the report ended up. Uh, fine. That's the, that was the final report on that incident. But at the very end of the show, they had this little kind of afterward that said, um, well, that was the official explanation that the witnesses to the event did not agree. Now that's taking it a step further. In legit well, there, there, was, there was also, for the people that are going to watch that, the, 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 the kids were burned. Their faces were their burned. burned. Their faces were burned, yeah. And Aldo doesn't do that. No. And not only that, but if you remember Close Encounters, because I was wondering, how did they ever put it together Close Encounters? Um, you know, uh, Roy Neary was played by, um, uh, I forgot the actor's name, uh, Dreyfus, uh, Dreyfus, yeah, Dreyfus was burned when he looked out uh, from the truck, and the thing was over the truck. He burned half of his face, so right. he spent the whole first first part of the movie radiation burns, yeah, trying to put makeup on half of his face. So I'm thinking, right. how, did, how did they get that? Well, they got that with the compilation of all the physical things that happened with encounters. And if those kids had burned faces or they had radiation burns, that was, uh, you know, a, a physical attribute. And, of course, I think the Air Force knew that there was something weird. What got me was the first episode, the, uh, the dog fight, the Gorman dog fight. Yeah, that was fascinating. That was fascinating in that he kept hearing the song, Fly Me to the Moon. Yes. I'm going... Okay, well, you know, uh, today, because we look at count encounters differently and people that have, uh, have had some kind of contact differently that remember a song or remember something that's uh, unusual, that's, uh, I, that I don't think that pilot heard the song Fly Me to the Moon, but I think they inserted that because... Today, uh, in 2019, we're looking at a paranormal component. So I was going to ask you that when I was watching that show, I, I made a note that, um, so in the, in the show, which again, this is a television show, it's entertainment, 
based on a true story. Um, Hynek investigated the radio logs from the station in San Diego that it supposedly broadcast from. So in your, from your understanding, that part is all fiction. No, that's fiction. Yes. But there's no way. Yeah. Uh, it, because I, even a pilot himself would not even say that. Uh, I mean, they, they're so uh, cut and dry, uh, they, and, and they wouldn't sit there listening to that song forever. Today, uh, today is a different story. Today we have contactees, we have people that tell it like it is, and there is that paranormal component, and it is in there. Uh, with contact of any kind. Well, even without the fly me to the moon thing, um, it was still very interesting in the nature of what was like a foo fight where he lost control of his, his, his uh, jet um, fighter, fighter uh, plane. He lost control of it and it was severely damaged, but he ended up relatively unharmed coming out of it, extremely shaken up, which as they pointed out, no plane could have, really survived and no person, no pilot could have survived that violent an event. Did they actually try to recreate it in some way or is that also a fictional license? No, um, they tried to recreate it. And, and I did a story in Italy uh, in about 2008 with a French geophysicist who was on the island Bikini Atoll when the French were doing the H-bomb tests. And he told me that he jumped in an airplane after the UFOs that did a flyover. He told me physically this. I mean, right. I have it on tape. And he said the instruments on the plane failed, and they thought they right. would crash. He told me that. Right. And then he said, as the UFOs disappeared over the horizon, the instrumentation came back. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that mean? That means that they just got too close, not that the UFOs were going to kill them or, or do the right. myth or whatever. So we need to look at all of this because people may consider it an act of war uh, when these things are flying over the Bikini Atoll. But this particular uh, man uh, who saw this on two occasions considered it an act of peace. Okay. Interesting. Well, um, we have only seen a couple episodes of it, and we've only seen how they've treated it thus far. We know they have taken artistic license, but at the same time, they are drawing on those real events, and they are putting these little kind of afterword or disclaimers at the end, giving you a chance to make your own mind up on it, not the nebulous, well, maybe one day we'll know. And I appreciate that because, to me, that's simply a step forward. And um, you know, the other element of this is what Danny Sheehan said in one of my interviews with him, and it disturbed a lot of people, especially people who just love the subject of disclosure and can't wait to get on with it and think it's around the corner any minute. Uh, there are a lot of, I've just read a couple small things, there are a lot of vested interests out there to see that this information doesn't just come out at once. But he said it's a roughly a 50-year process in his mind about how information is slowly rolled out and inculcated into society. And Zeus and I were having a conversation about this. It seems to me that we're at the point now, we've had every kind of ET, UFO, and paranormal show and movie out there for a long time. So the kids and the millennials, for example, and then their kids, it's just second nature to believe we're not alone in the universe. What's the point in the military trying to cover it up any longer when they it literally begin looking like fools? Because everybody's like, what, what's the problem here? We already know it's real. I think we're reaching 
more of a saturation of society. And this program is doing its little piece and taking people a little closer into the reality of it. In my opinion, what is yours on that? Well, it's historical. I mean, yeah. that, that was the Project Blue Book. Yeah. It did happen. It was, it was Air Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did have the whitewash on the Condon report. There was an attempt. Maybe there were, in those days, maybe there were more sightings and more uh, of an attempt to explain everything than there is today. Uh, because I do this work as a researcher, I, there's a lot in Latin America. There may be, not be very many here, but oh my goodness, in Latin America, the sightings, the contacts, uh, what's going on, uh, whatever cultures are hanging out there, they decided to go to Latin America. There's quite a few sites. There was one in Ireland. Uh, it doesn't mean, in those days, what they used to have was waves, what Alan called waves. And, and I got to tell you, when I started working with him, I was so naive. I, I didn't know anything. All I did was put pins on a map. I mean, he'd call me and say, Paula, there's four sightings over Indiana. Put a pin here, here, and here. So I had this map and I had these pins. And I, I, I just wanted to do that, Regina. I don't want to go into who was inside or what. <laughs> I know. Paula, <laughs> you years ago. You were still reticent a few years ago about who's inside those things and what the implications were. Yeah, I mean, I was going, okay, I'm doing a job here. I'm helping this great guy, you know, that is a professor that I respect and so forth. Putting pins and maps is okay for me, but don't <laughs> tell me that, you know, these things have any anybody inside or they have an agenda or anything. So in those days, but there were a lot of waves, what we call waves. Um, and there were waves over Canada, and there were waves over New York. And uh, so what these people were doing, and it's very important, because who does that today is MUFON. MUFON yes. does that today. They are kind of the Project Blue Book. They're the Project Blue Book. I mean, where do you call if you have a site? And you've got to call, uh, and not Ghostbusters. <laughs> you've got to call MUFON, because they do have that capacity a digitized capacity to do this so that, you know, there's even some kind of uh, a, uh, a, a newsletter that comes out with how many sightings there are all the, in all the states of the United States. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I was doing. Now. Right. I graduated to grad school and, and I, I am where I am today. But I thank the Lord that at that time I was able to see this in process now, what Alan Hynek, before he died, he died of a brain tumor in 1986. And it was one of those cases, just like Colonel Corso, where I was, just, you know, I just cried my eyes out. Because I knew the family. I know Mimi. And by the way, I, I'm going to give you the contact information for Paul, uh, who would be glad to talk to you. He's the youngest son. I knew the family. Um, I knew that that I was part of a research, real genuine research. This wasn't hokey. It was making history at the time. Yeah, it's a, a part of history. So thank God for this particular show. Uh, and and so, but, you know, you go from this. Alan at that time in 1986, as I was saying before he died, was very interested in the uh, contact phenomenon as far as abductions, implants, uh all those different things. And he went to Latin America a lot. Was he privy to some of the same information or some of the stories that John Mack was privy to in the day? 
Yeah, he was. But you know what, what was nice about him? At the time, I told you, I just wanted to deal with nuts and bolts. I'd go with him because he didn't drive. He didn't want to drive. He was very absent-minded. I mean, every time we'd go somewhere, he'd forget his umbrella, his hat, and everything. And I'd have to take his hat and umbrella. I, I just <laughs> took care of him. Um, and by the way, he had the same sun sign as I have. He was a Taurus with Sagittarius rising. Um, and we'd go to these places. Like we went in a place in Denver where he, a contactee would say, talk about his experience. And I'd look at Alan and say, are you going to listen to this? Are you, do you really believe this? And Alan turned around to me and he said, the greatest thing you could do in research, any kind of researcher, is just let the person tell the whole story. No judgments, no preconceived anything. Let them tell the whole story. So I learned in the future, whenever I speak to anybody, no matter how crazy out there it sounds, let them tell their story. Yes, and you do a good job of that, and that takes us to the next subject. So for anybody curious about Project Blue Book, um, it's on the History Channel, so it's it's airing right now, uh, probably three episodes in or so by the time you see this. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit to another one. And again, I've often recommended to people that they read the book, The Rendlesham Forest Affair, because I think it's an amazing anatomy of not only a sighting, an event, and contact, but also the anatomy of a dual government cover-up. It tells exactly who started when, where things started getting buried, disappearing, who was told to be quiet. So it's, it's interesting that way. Now, you recent, one of the primary characters who was a witness to the event uh, was Jim Penniston, who was a security guard for the Air Force at the time on the property the night of, I think it was December 26th, 1980, 1980, 1980, 1980. Okay. Yeah. And so Jim, um, Jim was on with you. You just interviewed him very recently and he gave you some new information that hadn't been shared before because he has a new book. Who who has he co-authored this book with? And Gary Osborne. Well, uh, let me let me just back up a little yeah. bit. Um, uh, about five months ago, Jim Penniston reached out to me because he remembers that I was at the citizen hearing. You remember that famous yes. hearing in Washington D.C. And I, he said to me, you, "You never came up and said hi to me." And I said, "Well, you know, I was so overwhelmed with all of you guys. It was thirty-nine witnesses." Uh, actually 40 with Linda Howe's one woman and 39 men. The usual <laughs> ratio in your field. Yes, fantastic <laughs> ratio in ufology. And, but I went there because I'm very close friends with Paul Hallier, the former defense minister. So if you see the pictures, I'm just sitting in the front row with Paul the whole time. And Jim said, well, you know, you never came up and, and talked to me. And, I, and, and he said, I have to tell you something, Paula. He said, after, and I can't believe it's been 38 years. He said, after 38 years, he said, I'm collaborating on a book with Gary Osborne because he had a notebook. What happened with Jim? And he was really the only real uh, credible witness in that he's the one that walked up to the UFO, tried to push it. He actually tried to push it. Yes. He looked underneath it. He tried to to see what, you know, how he said it was nine feet by nine feet um, triangular with a fin. 
he said that he didn't see any landing gear, but when it disappeared, they measured the, the soil and whatever was sitting there was seven tons. Seven yes. tons. I mean, I was trying to figure out just logistically how you can have something like that. Uh, and because you couldn't see any landing, you looked underneath. But he said he, he when he saw this thing, because he thought it was a plane crash, it was very much like a Clifford Stone story. He said, I, I expected body parts, the plane and everything, because I could see the glow. He says, when I thought, when I saw it, I thought, I'm not going to get out of here alive. He said, so he took out his notebook and started, he had this little notebook that his handwriting is really all over the place and because he's so scared and does his job. And he did it for the historical purposes, went around the craft, measured it, uh, said that it was, you know, cool to the touch. He even uh, reproduced the glyphs on it. He put his hand over one of the glyphs. That The light just came out. He said it blinded him, but what was amazing was he got his night vision back immediately. What's interesting about this book, because so many books have been written about Rendlesham. One of them is the Nick Pope book, uh, that was, and he's a good friend of mine. And yeah, the one well, I mentioned, that's the Rendlesham yeah, Forest Rendlesham. Affair. And, and people, if you want, yeah, and I interviewed him on Gaia with that one for that take on it for anyone interested. Go ahead about this one. Well, you know, I'm going to make a, a small little commercial. You, Peniston, and Nick Pope will be at my conference November 1st. In Laughlin, Nevada, all three of you will be there. So yes, indeed. <laughs> November 1st through uh, 3rd. And the thing is that with Jim, that I I said, well, you know, what makes this different? He said, he said that it was only like six or seven years ago that he looked in the back of the book and there's 16 pages of a binary code. 16 pages, 0011001. Have they, have they interpreted it? Did they? That's what the book is about. The, uh, Gary Osborne, that is his forte. That is his um, strength. So Gary Osborne has taken uh, almost a year to interpret it. And believe it or not, it's not only coordinates, it's a message for mankind, Regina. Do you know what, I know you can't share it, but. No, I can share it. It, it, it has to do with consciousness raising. It's it, because it, it says at the very end, first of all, the coordinates have changed. There's two spots in Peru in the coordinates, two spots Wait a minute, in Peru. Wait a minute. What, what were the, tell me again, what were the coordinates? 29, I think it was 29 degrees all over the planet. And there's, uh, uh, what came out was, it, what came out with ancient aliens was high Brazil, which is near the, uh, near Ireland. But what came out when Gary Osborne worked on it is that there's two spots in Peru. There's uh, one spot in the plain of Giza under the Sphinx. There's different spots around the world. Uh, one in China that this coordinate, these coordinates relate to actual places and then when you put together a code within a code he calls it a code within a code and people should read the book when it comes out he said something about these whoever was uh, that that was doing this um and he believes it was unmanned for some reason uh i are you know it was for the benefit of the exploration and evolution of mankind and the, yes, and the evolution of mankind is consciousness. It's like grow up, people. You know, uh, this is the time where you have decisions to make. 
Uh, you had, this is a time where you have a whole new generation. You're going into another era. Don't go backwards. And so um, he said this in a lecture at the University of Colorado last Friday. And tomorrow I'm going to be talking to Gary Osborne to get the exact, what exactly was the, the, the message. I know what the coordinates are. But it's all tied into a timeline of, uh, you know, visitations in the past and uh, warnings for the future. So when you're talking about the coordinates, what were the coordinates these particular locations tasked with or said to possess? Uh, visitations. I think it was visitations. I think, I okay. mean, when you talk about Peru, one of them is on the Nazca plain. Oh, okay. Well, that and makes another sense. Another <laughs> one is in Peru in a very uh, remote place, which... You know, uh, Jim Penniston said to me, I got to go to that remote place. I mean, you know, because it's on the coordinates. And and, uh, and one of them is in Giza. There's several. One in China. Um, so the, the book is about the code. It's about, and, and you know something? He, he did get 16 pages of binary code. I, I said, how did that happen? He said, I'd wake up at night and I'd see it. I'd see it. I'd see it. And I'd sit down. And he said, I had to write it, write it until it got, he said, it made me feel better. After 16 pages of it, I felt better physically. He felt better. And so what was being done to it? I mean, think about it. I mean, somebody was transmitting a message and when he finished writing it, he felt better. And what he says is that there, and he starts his, uh, his talk this way. There's so much misinformation and disinformation, and ego, and everybody's in there, and everybody's fighting. He said, but remember one thing, he said, I not only was the only one that went there, he said, I took notes, copious notes, because I thought I wasn't going to come out alive. Yeah, I heard, I listened to your interview, I heard him say that. Um, Of course, he didn't know what he, once he realized what was going on, you know, it would be understandable to be nervous to that extent. One thing he also said is that he had a camera. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah, he had a camera. Uh, <laughs> he's not the only one that, you know, had a camera, but he had a camera and he took photos and he said the photos were all whitewashed. They yes. were all a white, but I, I'm not sure about that. He said, well, you know, Paul, I believe that. He said, because somebody else that was close by had a camera and uh, and went the next day, and they developed the film at home, and it was white. Yeah, and that's, uh, I remember reading that in Nick Pope's book, The Rendlesham Forest Affair, and that is not uncommon where other sightings have occurred where it ends up empty. There's nothing there. So whatever energetic pulse devices they have, it seems like they have the capability to certainly interfere to that extent. So that's gone. What is another thing there that I, I, you know, I wanted to ask Jim about, and he wouldn't comment on it. And, but I've asked Nick about it, and Nick, and said, the I glyphs. About it. And that is the, the shining of the light over the weapon storage area, because, the, you know, they weren't supposed to have nukes. <laughs> Uh-huh. 1980, uh, in, in, a, in a, you know, missiles with nuclear warheads or whatever on in a foreign base. I mean, they had like, I think some kind of treaty where you were supposed to, have, you were not supposed to bring them over. And I find that very interesting. Jim will not come on, he says no comment when yeah. you ask him about that. But if that is the case, then in all my 30 years of research, the only thing that ties 
the, some of these visitations is that there's like even Stephenville had a nuclear, uh, you know, absolutely had a nuclear power plant. I interviewed John Charles Dubac, the pilot that uh, had the sighting over Paris and that was over a nuclear power plant. I mean, there is a connection with uh, either a nuclear power plant, the use of nukes, or where nukes are, or something uh, that that is giving us a subtle but not so subtle message about uh, possible nuclear accident, the fact that we have to be careful with what we've discovered, and so forth. That, to me, if somebody asked me, what is that the, the, the main theme of all of this stuff? Absolutely. And that's been well chronicled in a number of cases where they've actually come over and even in uh, the one famous case shut down the ability for the silos to operate. Yes, 1969 Maelstrom Air Force Base, yes. right exactly. after another. And, exactly. uh, yeah, and it's, I think it's still being done. It's just not being reported. I think so. You know, it's interesting because the viewers watching this, uh, most of them know I've spoken about some beings that I get information with and from and I have for many, many years. And I always ask about larger stories about what's happening. And uh, probably 25, 30 years ago now, I asked about this phenomena about UFOs and uh, why and where they're visiting and so forth, just in an open conversation with them. And they said they tend to uh, show up over military installations because there's a great concern within the cosmos about our, um, uh, well, the ability to produce nuclear weapons without the wisdom to know not to use them. And this is a great concern and it won't be allowed for us to contaminate other areas with this technology. So, that it just that's what they said to me 30 some years ago and it dovetails perfectly with all the findings since then and the sightings since then yeah i i agree and not only that but uh this was a cold war and project blue book was a cold war and yes. god bless him you did the best interview on, with robert dean i have ever seen yes <laughs> thank you oh my god i love that man and you did an amazing interview with him um, and I, I think that's in, for someone that wants to see it, I think that was in uh, my CMN archives, which Gaia owns. So you can access the CMN archives, Conscious Media Network archives at Gaia for anybody that wants to see that, which I did at a picnic bench up at Trout Lake at James Gilliland's place. <laughs> well, it was amazing. But, you know, he was a good friend of mine. And he yes. said to me, because uh, he came to Italy a lot, and I in Italy he said to me, "You know, Paula, I mean, this looks um, harmless, but it isn't." He said because during the Cold War, we thought they were Russian, and the Russians thought that that stuff was ours. It could have started a yes. war. Well, that can happen again. Are you tell? Are you kidding? Yes, uh, that could happen again. And uh, if if we, if they're unidentified and we think they come from China or someplace. We, we start a, a major uh, conflict, it, it, it creates a, uh, a, a real international incident. So I can see their point of view. I, mean, I can see it too. But on the other hand, uh, one of the stories that has also perpetually circulated, and, and it, it is on record as well, that there when there have been attempts to irresponsibly shoot this stuff up uh, on occasion, that um, UFOs have been known to encounter and neutralize these things too. So that's 
that's not an uncommon story, almost uh, helping us um, protect us from ourselves, so to speak. Well, yeah, and, and there is, you know, if you want to go into detail, uh, and we were in Europe and we saw photos of a UFO over Chernobyl just sucking up all the... Uh, yes. There's a photo out there. And when Fukushima happened, there's video footage of UFOs going right through that site. Exactly. In a way, everybody would be toast. Exactly. Nuclear, again, the subject of nuclear energy over right. and over. I, I agree, but you know, don't you get don't you get frustrated like I do? When are we going to learn? What does it take? Oh yeah. What 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 will it take for people to grow up? Uh, what will it take for nations to understand that we're in a chess game and that we can't just live with checkmate, checkmate? You know, you have it, we have it. We're going to make some more. You make some more checkmate. You know, because there's no way of putting the genie back in the bottle. No, there's not. And on that note, again, you know, going to the more esoteric, I interviewed Sheila Gillette recently and on my site, and I'm getting ready to do the second half of the conversation on Gaia in another month or so. And one thing they said is that as this actually becomes more of a global culture where we're doing, we're already, we already have a global economy, whether we like to call it that or not, that's the reality of it. We're completely interdependent economically on this globe. But as we start tearing those walls down even further with kids in one part of the world, you know, watching videos from kids in another part of the world, and we, we start releasing some of the levels of fear and xenophobia that we've had up until now, I think it's with these future generations that that, that kind of fear and, and fear of other and fear of different and even hatred in some cases is going to start dissipating. And I really think that's when we start progressing beyond the need for such primitive weapons as nuclear weapons. Well, I hope to, I hope to look to see that because um, what, what happens right now is everybody's afraid of some kind of incident that's an accident and we can't live like that because, no. first of all, we should not be living in any kind of fear. We should not. Fear, fear kind of situation. You can't evolve in fear. You have to evolve in a, in a state of, uh, I always call it uh, education, in other words, of evolution. And, you know, I think you and I have studied this enough, so I feel like I'm in grad school by, by now on this stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I was humbled to be in the presence of, of Jim Fenston. I mean, I kept looking at him thinking, you actually went and you were touching this thing. And you actually went and you were in the space of this thing. Uh, and, you know, these are heroes, these people that are willing to tell their stories our heroes, Alan Hynek was a hero that he changed his mind. That's why I, I really admire people who were thinking one way and changed their mind. Yes, because they were open enough to do so. Even John Mack, my God. And when I talked to John, John had changed his mind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's one of everybody's heroes because he was such a courageous man. Head of clinical psychology at Harvard, you know, passport to the cosmos. He went in because someone said, hey, these people all say they're abducted. Someone's got to look at this. There are so many of them. Would you please do it? And he did agree to do it. And at the end, he said, not sure exactly what the game is, but these people are all experience, having the same experience and we have to look at it. 
Yeah, and these are heroes because they're legitimate people. They're not yeah. just, you know, people that want attention off the street and so no. forth. No. And the military, I've, I've been dealing, most of my books are military and intelligence personnel who tell me, this, like Guillain-Dromic, like Jean-Charles Dubarc, the pilot, and so forth, like Clifford Stone. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, in a way, I'm, I, when I do this, and I think you feel this way too, um, you're listening, but I internalize it and go, oh my God, this is real. Yes. Oh Lord, this is like this needs to come out. This is real. This is disclosure. We have disclosure. I'm convinced. This is disclosure. What else do you want? It is disclosure. It has been for years. You know, and I have people ask me a lot of times when if the subject comes up or they've seen one of my interviews on the subject of uh, extraterrestrials and UFOs, uh, who cares? It's just salacious material. So what if they're here? What difference does it make? Um and, and, you know, my answer is really simply, Stephen Greer, for example, has been on this beat for a really long time. In his fascination and the fascination of many others, including the military and the intelligence agencies, has been that these cultures have access to, if, even, if even if their spiritual development may not be even on a par with earthlings to a certain extent, with some species. Their technology certainly surpasses ours and gives the possibility, if we can be in peace and love and collaboration, to greatly enhance the quality of life on Earth with energy-producing technologies alone. And so why do we need to take this subject seriously? In my opinion, it's because there is a great collaboration of technological, spiritual, practical knowledge that can be shared between these cultures throughout the cosmos if we're not afraid and if we don't see it as an act of war just for someone to simply show up. And then I think that the human species can begin progressing even more rapidly once we have genuine access to some of that technology. And you and I know, uh, you know more than anyone through your work with Corso, what we're already benefiting from just from the Roswell crash alone technologically, even if the military won't admit it. Yeah, there's that aspect. And then you, I think, would agree is that we are part of something bigger than just this. Absolutely. We are part of something bigger. I remember doing the movie Serious with Stephen Greer, and at the very end, the very last day, he's standing in a field all with the Milky Way, because we're in Creston. You could see every star in the sky. He turned around to me and he said, why would you want to do anything else? Yes. And I looked at the sky and I saw, uh, I looked at him too, and there were tears in his eyes. And it's like, when you do this, whether you do this, there's a lot of people that do CE5s. Uh, and when you do this, you, you come to the conclusion that you're not just a mere human being. You're connected to a cosmic family up there all over the, all over the universe. So we are not alone. I guess, that is the main message, even a blue book, right? That we're not alone? Yes, it is. And in the end, it doesn't matter whether you want to look at the subject and embrace it or you don't want to. We still, as you said earlier, we still have to grow up and start working through more uh, compassion and collaboration, even just here with each other on the ground. That's number one. And once we can master that, then I think we're ready to have interaction with some other larger players. Yeah, you got it. I mean, we have to we take care of each other and, and respect each other here before we spread respect or even encounter cosmic cultures. I mean, exactly. that's just logical. That's just logical. 
And and I really am having fun watching uh, Project Blue. Ball. I am too. It's, like, it's airing on Tuesday nights for anybody that yeah. still has a television cable subscription or a computer. Yeah, it's Tuesday nights, and I think it's uh, 10, 10 episodes. So we're having fun with it, and uh, I really appreciate your taking the time to kind of give us the skinny on um, on Alan Hynek and some of what's real and some of what's fabricated in this. But I think it's fair to say that the bones of it are real. And this is part of disclosure and an attempt to start gently rolling out what's been going on all along. Yeah, so that's great to have a conversation with you again. And let's watch. Let's do that. And also, uh, your interview uh, with Jim Penniston and so much other work is on your website, paloharris.com. And also, you have your StarWorks USA conference, which, as you said, myself and others will be presenting at this coming November. And they can learn more about that at your website as well. And I have a YouTube channel of all my interviews, and that's where the three-part Jim Penniston is. Absolutely. Yeah, so come and join us. Okay, very good. Thank you so much, Paula. As always, it's a pleasure having you with us today. And I know you'll be back before too long. I'll probably end up interviewing you at Gaia. But also, you and I are going to be doing a little trip to Sardinia and Rome in May and start digging around for another mystery. And we'll just leave it at that, okay? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Until next time, everyone, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com and uh, go to PaulaHarris.com to learn more about her incredible work.